I don't know how you sing that and not get excited. Those are some pretty awesome truths, aren't they? And uh, I, I, honestly, I had an opportunity this week. I, I was talking to my kids about uh, the perfect form of government, uh, which is kind of an interesting topic as we're like moving into an election season. But I had the opportunity to just kind of remind them that uh, the thing that we're looking forward to, the thing that we need most is when Jesus is king. What an awesome uh, kingdom that he brings, just to think that there's gonna be peace, there's gonna be justice, and we know that this promise, he's coming again, it's gonna happen. I, I was thinking about Revelation chapter 21, when we were singing this, he says that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, death shall be no, no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away, and he who is seated on the throne says, behold, I am making all things new. Man, we've got a great hope, Amen. Praise God for that. You guys can be seated. And uh, if you would, why don't you go with me? If you got your Bibles, why don't you take those out and go with me to the book of Exodus. Um, we are gonna be in the book of Exodus. Why don't you have a copy of God's word? So if you don't have one in front of you, don't have a Bible, just uh, you can, our ushers are coming around. You just get their attention. They would love to give you one. Um, or you can follow along with us on the Bible app, and we are going to be in Exodus chapter 20. And just honestly, the things that we just uh, thought about, the things that we're singing about and thinking about Jesus coming again in the kingdom and what that's going to bring, I'm just so fired up about. We're actually going to see some of that uh, on display here in Exodus chapter 20. This is the Ten Commandments. All right? So this is a very, very familiar passage of Scripture, I know. But, but maybe... Uh, it's not as familiar as you think it is. For example, if I were to call uh, one of you on stage right now and uh, have you stand in front of everybody, and uh, how, many, how many of you think that you could recite all 10 of the commands in order? Anybody feel like you could do that? Like, we should be ashamed of ourselves, right? Like, some of us have been Christians a really long time. I'm like, I'm not really sure that I could do that. Quite honestly, I think I would actually have to uh, cram a little bit before that kind of a test, all right? Uh, but but so, so, so maybe, maybe these things aren't quite as familiar as we think. We could probably get uh, pretty close to some of them. Not sure that we'd get them in order. Actually, uh, the order of them would be confusing. Uh, did you know, uh, maybe, maybe you didn't realize this, th there's kind of a, a confusion over how to number the, the Ten Commandments. There, there's the traditional Christian uh, counting where uh, that, that normally we think of the first commandment as verse three, that, that you shall have no other gods before me, and the second commandment is verse four, and then subsequently just kind of moves on from there. But, but some people actually combine what we think as number one and number two, uh, including the carved images. They, they combine those first two into one and then they take the, what we consider the 10th commandment there in verse 17, that you shall not covet, and they split that one into two different, you know, don't covet your neighbor's house, or then covet your neighbor's wife. And so that's how they number them. And then there's the Jewish counting. The Jews actually look at uh, verse three, excuse me, verse two there. They start with verse two, that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's command number one, and it's a command to monotheism, and then they, you know, combine uh, verses three to six and, and, and so forth and so on. So, so, so in one sense, it's kind of, if somebody were to come up to you and be like, you broke the second commandment, you'd, you might have to be like, well, which one do you think is the second commandment, right? Like, it's, it's a little bit confusing for us. And, and, and while we're maybe not exactly sure on how uh, we're supposed to number these, we do know that there's 10. And the reason we know that is because in chapter 34, 
Uh, Exodus 34, in just a few chapters, uh, it says that he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, or in the Hebrew it actually says the Ten Words. So we know that there's ten, but maybe the question that that I really want us to uh, consider for just a minute is this. Do we have to keep the Ten Commandments? We are New Testament believers in Jesus. Do we have to keep these? I think this, uh, there, there's actually a, a little bit more complexity to this question than you might realize. Because in one sense, I want to say to you, no. And, and then in another sense, I want to say to you, well, we are when we're following and loving Jesus. So first you just have to know that Exodus chapter 20 is God's word. And so therefore, it is authoritative and it is instructive for us. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So so this is useful to us. This is beneficial to us. We need this. However, it's, it's, it's a little too simplistic to just say Christians have to keep the Ten Commandments because we need to actually appreciate how to read this in the story of the Bible and how the law actually functions in our lives. Okay, so, so, so what's happening here as we move to Exodus 20, as we saw uh, last week, God's meeting them on the mountain of Mount Sinai, and, and God is making a covenant here with Israel, not us. He's making a covenant with Israel. This is what we consider the the Mosaic covenant. Really, it's Yahweh or the Lord's covenant with Israel. And, And the New Testament helps us understand that we are not under the law. We're not under the law. We are under grace. We are in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And so so we're living in a different part of the story now. But, but that does not mean that we just you know, throw out the Ten Commandments and we don't have to even you know, bother with these things. Honestly, actually, nine out of ten of these commands are reiterated for New Testament believers in, in the New Testament. And the, the only one that's not reiterated for us is the Sabbath, that you don't do any work on the seventh day. We really see that, that Jesus is our Sabbath. Jesus is our rest. And so, 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 so there are some things in here that we say, well, yeah, like we, need to, we, we, we need to be obedient to that because they're reiterated for us in the New Testament as commands as we're following Christ, but I want to tell you that there's some ethic, obvious ethical value in the Ten Commandments. And these things show us how somebody loves God and how you love others, how you love your neighbor. And so here's a big idea. Let me give you a big idea that I hope that we're going to appreciate as we jump into this familiar text. Note this. We need the law to show us who God is, who we are, and how we can live and love him. So we're not like throwing this out. We, we as believers in Jesus, as followers of Christ, need this, but, but maybe it's just a little bit differently, works a little bit differently than we may just approach it as oh, we just got to follow all these and keep all these rules. Okay. Let me show this to you. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1. It says that God spoke all these words saying, 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off and, and, and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Lord God, we love your uh, word and, and so thankful for what you're showing us here. And, and, and Lord, as we've been reminded today, we wanna uh, come boldly into your throne room because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. And yet we do wanna come with, with reverence and awe. Now forget that you're a holy God. And I, I pray that as we open these things up, that, that we would see this is, this is good, we need this. And, and that we would see a a clearer picture of who you are and what your kingdom really looks like. And we'd rejoice. Lord, ultimately, we would rejoice that Jesus kept this for us. I pray that we would love Christ more because of it. I pray that this is true in our hearts. Would you write these things on our hearts? We'd become more like you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. All right. Well, here, let's do this. I, I want to I break this down and, and kind of show you two functions of the law, okay? As we approach this, we want to make sure that we're understanding how we're supposed to be reading this and then how we apply it into our lives. And so here's uh, the first function if you're taking notes. Uh, note this. The law reflects the character of God and instructs us in the path of life. Like, I know that's really two, but we're combining those into one, okay? So, so this is what the law is doing. It's, it's helping us, it's, it's reflecting the character of God and instructing us in the path of life. It, it's showing us who God is and a better way for us to live. Uh, now remember, God is clarifying for his people Israel what is right and what is wrong and, and, and the way that he wants them to live, the standards that he wants them to maintain. And, and while God is directing this specifically to the children of Israel in the wilderness, we do hear, see here some, some principles of ethics that are, that are right and wrong for everybody. And, and so even though we're, we're saying like we're not under 
the law, it, it, it's kind of confusing to say we don't have to keep the Ten Commandments because then you're like, well, wait a minute, do it. Like, it's, it's okay to murder somebody? Like, I, it's okay to commit adultery? Well, no, 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 no. You see, there is right and there is wrong. There are some things that are always right. There are some things that are always wrong. This idea of morality, we, we might actually call this moral law. There are moral norms that exist, and they are universal, and they apply to everyone. It's just the way it is. And we could actually ask the question, like, where, where does where does morality come from? Where's the idea of right and wrong come from? If you've read uh, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, I think he actually argues quite effectively for the existence of God by saying that, that because there is moral law, which we all have a, a sense of, by the way, like, like, you, it's, it's really hard to deny that. It's, in, in fact, if you want to say, like, well, you know, right and wrong is just made up, it's a, it's a cultural thing, but there's no way that there's some things that are always right and some things that are always wrong. All I have to do is come up and, like, kick you in the shins and, and, and really hard and, and, and might hurt you, and you might be like, why did you do that? And I'm like, I'm a lot. You know, what, what, what's your problem with it? And if you say, well, you can't do that, that's wrong. Why is it wrong? You see, we all have this sense that right and wrong exists. And Lewis is saying that because there is moral law, then it follows that there must be a law giver. That these things are coming from the Lord. But then we could ask the question, but why are some things always right and some things always wrong? Like, like, like how does God decide what the rules are, the moral Norms, like, like, like what is it, what makes him say that this is right and this is wrong? And, and, and permit me to just get a little philosophical for just a minute, okay? Because maybe, maybe we can conceptualize this in a way that would help us kind of appreciate um, what's happening here and where morality comes from, okay? So, so, so let's think of it this way. Maybe moral law is under God. Okay, so like, like, like God is over it, and the law is whatever he says it is. Like, he's the king, he gets to decide, so like, he could have arbitrarily uh, decided whatever he wanted to make into a law, and because he said it, that would be a law. Like, like theoretically, he could have decided that uh, it is morally wrong to pick your nose. Like, I could have come up with a grosser illustration, I know, but like, like theoretically, he could have said that, and, and some of you wish that he would have made that into a, a moral sin. Others of you would probably be in big trouble, to be honest, right? But, but, but I, I think instinctively, we kind of know that there's, there's something deeper here reflected that, 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 than God's just simply randomly making up rules as he goes. And, and so maybe moral law is not under God. Maybe, maybe moral law is over God. As in, he didn't decide it, just pick whatever rules. It, it just is. And God is actually bound to it himself. And he's just relaying to us the rules that he himself has to submit to. But, but in that sense, then, moral law would seem to precede or even supersede God as if something is greater than him, and that can't be it. So I think what is happening here, I think what we see reflected in the text is, is Moral law, it's not that it's under him, it's not that it's over him. Moral law comes from God. It is rooted in the character of God. Right and wrong comes from who God is. And so what we're reading when we read the 
Ten Commandments, we're actually seeing these moral norms in the Ten Commandments. And so therefore, these Ten Commandments then reflect God's character. Which is probably why he says, verse 2, he, he starts with this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The first thing he says is he's declaring who he is. Before he gets into any commands, before he starts going into all the expectations, he says who he is and what he's done. We actually saw that as a gospel pattern last week, that salvation precedes the law, right? Like we want to be obedient to Christ, we want to obey God, but not so that we can earn salvation, but because of who he is and what he's already done to save us. Who he is and what he's done comes first. And so what we're actually gonna see in these 10 commandments is a better way for us to live, but we're also seeing God's character on display in them, which I think, I, I, I'm just gonna confess to you for just a minute. Uh, I'm, honestly, when I thought about the 10 commandments for a lot of years, I kind of had an aversion to this. Like they just seem, I, I think about them kind of negatively. It's like a list of do's and don'ts, mostly don'ts. But I think this is why David says this in Psalm 19, which I don't know that I really appreciated it until I began to see what God is teaching us here. David says this about the law. I got this for you on the screen. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Do you see the, the, the value that he sees there? This is not just a list of rules. The law is good because as we look at it, we see the character of a good and righteous and holy God. And, and, and he's teaching us the best way for us to live. Which is why then David would say in Psalm 16, 11, you can see this here. He says this, you make known to me the path of life. Life is better in obedience to God. Remember, when God says no, what he's saying is like, don't hurt yourself. Like, he knows what's best for us, and when he's saying these things, it, it, it helps us understand this is the way we're designed to live. And what we're gonna see, the problem is like these commands run contrary to the, the impulses of our sinful heart. But we have to start with this expectation that God's way is always better. And, and that's what you're gonna see on display as we read through these commands. So, so the first command there, verse three, we'll, we'll number that number one, is that you shall have no other gods before me. Why, why would he say that? Well, because he alone is God. And see, God knows that when we submit and when we worship him, we're doing what we were made to do. It makes sense. This is the way I've designed you. And he knows that, unfortunately, we're, because we're rebellious sinners, we foolishly put other things before him in our lives. And so this command is a direct assault on the idolatry in our hearts. Those false gods got to go. 
Which is why then he says, verse 4, that, that, that you shall have no carved images. Don't, don't bow down to them. Don't serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. He knows that only he is worthy. Only he can satisfy. And it's so stupid for us to put anything else as first in importance in our lives and think that that's going to work out. So what he's trying to do is, is, is keep us from pain and the disappointment of idolatry and running after all these other things that in the end are just going to leave us empty. And he wants our love. He wants our affection. He's, he's jealous for it. He, he, he deserves it. And, and, and he loves us and wants us to enjoy this loving relationship with him. And then he says, don't, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And just shows the importance of, of the respect that God, he is, he is a holy God. He deserves this. And, and the importance of not misrepresenting who he is. That we're not just saying his name flippantly as if it doesn't matter and, and we're not uh, living what we say and what we do should be consistent, should be genuine. It should be uh, uh, elevating the reputation of God as he truly is. Number four then, he says about the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, but on the seventh not do any work. And he actually grounds that in creation. Verse 11, he says uh, that, that God created everything in six days and then he rested on the seventh day. So, so God himself kind of laid out a weekly pattern of work and rest for us. And this command, it was actually a gift to uh, the children of Israel. And, and it's it, it combating this impulse that we have just to work and work and work and this never-ending grind to produce and achieve and succeed as if we're invincible and as if we're kind of self-sufficient, self-reliant. We can take care of ourselves. We can do it alone. Because the problem is we can't. It doesn't work out that way. We, we, we break down and we burn out and we can't do it ourselves and, 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 and life is hard and we get weary and, and, and we need rest. And so this is here just to remind us that God is our creator. He is our sustainer. He is our strength. He is our provider and we can trust him. We don't have to trust in just what we're doing. We're able to see that, that our work, the jobs that you have, it has value. It's a good thing. But it doesn't bring us ultimate meaning in our life. Only God can do that, and we just rest in that. And so you see, the, the, the first four commands there, then they, they really have this vertical focus that we would really love God. And then the, the, the focus shifts to our horizontal relationships that we would love others, that we would learn to love our neighbor. He says, verse 12, that, that you should honor uh, your father and mother. You need to respect the authority that God has placed in your life. The problem is our rebellious hearts, we, we chafe against authority. But, but honestly, you can, just, you can see the breakdown of society and, and the chaos that ensues when, when people's wants and passions and all of their desires go unchecked and they refuse to be told no and they refuse to, uh, to, to be held accountable and have no respect for the authority that's over them. Like, like it just doesn't, it, it doesn't work. But there's so much good in God's design of the family and the household that's full of honor and love and respect, and that spills out into society. And he says, verse 13, number six, you shall not murder because God is the giver of life. and People are made in his image. And so, so, so what this doing, this is actually protecting us against the horrors of, of hatred and violence and injustice 
And we have no right to ever think that we are more important, more valuable than any other human being. We have a right to live and they don't. And we take their life out of hatred or, or revenge or anger or lack of compassion or whatever it is. This is God's protection against that. You see that? And he says, um, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Our, our, our lusts, and our sexual immorality lure us away from God's beautiful design. Man, this is for our time, isn't it? But it never satisfies. Like we run after all of these things and, and, and the sexual impulse that we have and the, the, the freedom that we want to enjoy outside of the bounds and the way that God has designed it between one man and one woman in a marriage relationship and Sure, it like feels good in the moment, but it leaves us full of guilt and shame. And impurity and unfaithfulness just leaves a wreckage of shattered hearts and homes. But God's design, God himself is pure. And God is holy. And God is faithful. It's such a beautiful thing to see that reflected and displayed in, in loving, self-sacrificial, faithful marriage relationships. And, and then he says, verse 15, you shall not steal. Because it's so, honestly, it's just so selfish and prideful to think that you deserve to have whatever you want, even if it doesn't belong to you, and you just take uh, what's yours uh, or what you want to be yours, and it's not really yours. But, but, but what we're seeing here is, listen, listen, God is our provider. He's the one. We can trust him. You see society breaking down when everybody's just taking what's theirs. He says, you shall not bear false witness. I was talking with one of our uh, police officers just a couple of weeks ago about the importance of telling the truth. And, and uh, he was actually informing that, me that uh, the way this works is if you are one of the police officers, I'm so thankful for our city, uh, Fairfax um, Police Department. He, he, he helped me understand that, that if you're a police officer and you are caught lying, you're off the force. It's like one strike, you're out. Because how are they supposed to put you up on the witness stand? I mean, that's a big part of the job. They're going to have to go and, 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 and swear in. And, and uh, what, what happens is if that officer is there uh, and, and he's been caught lying, then the department is actually legally required to inform the judge this officer has been known to be untruthful. And how do you think the defense lawyers are going to respond to that? So, so just think about how is a, a society supposed to function if um, false accusations and injustice and deception are acceptable. And the reason we don't lie is because God does not lie. Man, that's a glorious truth that we would know about him. That every time he speaks, he tells the truth. We never have to wonder if he's trying to trick us or if he's trying to deceive us. He is trustworthy because he speaks the truth. He says, you, finally, you shall not covet, not covet your um, neighbor's house or wife or any, anything. 
And so maybe this isn't actually taking the action, like you're going out and you're taking something, you're actually stealing it, but your heart is just full of discontentment and desire for what you don't have and what is not yours. And then relationships just get strained by jealousy and manipulation. And again, God knows that only he can satisfy and you're not gonna find fulfillment and satisfaction in more money or more stuff or more comfort or security or accolades or praise or 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 anything, it's, it's found in him. So what he's saying is don't run after all these other gods. Don't, don't want these things more than you want him, that you would trust him and that you'd recognize that, that God provides. And honestly, we have so much to praise him and be thankful for. And so again, I, I told you, like when we read a list of commandments, I know it kind of feel like we have a little bit of an aversion to a list of rules that's kind of placed on us, but, but, but do you see the good and righteous character of God on display in these commands? You see, like he knows how stupid and destructive sin is, and he doesn't want us to hurt ourselves. Honestly, only a kind and loving God would care about us like that. And, and he doesn't want people to be exploited or oppressed He doesn't want lives and homes and communities just ripped apart by the carnage of sin. But God's design is that there would be peace, there would be justice, there would be righteousness, there would be honor, there would be love. See, sin leads to death, but God's way is the path to life. And so these 10 commandments then are so instructive for us as we're seeing the beauty of of God's design and his desire for us, and we're seeing the goodness of his holiness and his character on display in them. But there's a second function of the law, and this is really important for us as we approach this, and how are we supposed to read this, and, and, and what are we supposed to do with this? One, see the awesome beauty of it. Look at the design. We, we, we measure our lives by this, but, but note this. Here's the second function. The law convicts us of sin and points us to Christ. That's what it's here for. Don't forget um, that as Israel is receiving these commands, they're getting this, remember we saw this last week at the mountain, they're getting this awesome audio-visual display, this experience of God where they're they're seeing the lightning and the the thunder and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains just, the whole mountain's on fire and it's going up like the smoke from a kiln. And honestly, they're kind of freaked out by this. And, And it impresses upon them the holiness of God and the seriousness of obeying him. God's not messing around. And in fact, they're so scared that they're like, hey, Moses, you, you, you speak to us. Don't, don't let God speak to us. We're going to die. But, but Moses says, verse 20, do not, do not fear. God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. See, God's not coming to kill them. He's coming to instruct them in the path of life. And, and his impressive and awesome presence is supposed to show them that they need to live their lives in the fear of the Lord. Like a, a, a healthy fear, okay? Now, my family has a healthy fear of germs right now after the flu just like ripped through our household. Anybody else have that? Like, like we're here, okay? We're not like losing our minds or anything, but, but 
We're like, wash your hands. Like, we understand. Like, that's a, that's a big deal. We understand. Like, this is kind of a serious thing. It, it, it's somewhat similar to that. that, that I, and I wish I could say that Israel got it and, and this experience just rattled them, but it also kind of reminded them to just constantly live in light of God's holiness and obey him. But we know the story, don't we? We, we know what's coming. It's not going to take long. And they're just going to completely forget all about this and just fail miserably. Literally, no sooner do they receive these commands than they break them. God just told them, no other gods, no carved images. And what do they go make? They make a baby cow out of gold. And, and, and like, Maybe there's some sort of like historical uh, background or information that would help us understand the rationale and how they came to the conclusion that that was a really good idea. But in all reality, it's as dumb as it sounds. And these commands exposed their sinful hearts. And it just puts a big old spotlight on the fact that they couldn't keep them. In fact, the whole story of the Old Testament is their failure to keep God's law. They go out and they, the scripture says they play the whore and they go running after all sorts of other gods and they break every single one of God's commands. And when you're like in your Bible reading, you, you started your yearly Bible reading, you're probably you know, getting close here. You're gonna get into this and, and, and what God's called them to do and you're just gonna have to keep re- reading over and over all these stupid mistakes that, and, and you're just like, What a bunch of jokers. Like, why don't they get this? But before we go dumping on Israel, right, we gotta remember that their story is our story too. In fact, John Piper said it this way. Israel is the historical microcosm of the world's conscience. The historical theater where the drama of every human soul is played out for all to see. If you want to know your own spiritual condition before God as a human being, you can learn it from watching the history of Israel as it's interpreted in the Bible. So as you're reading this, you're seeing them just failing miserably to follow God's commands. And you just see their sin over and over highlighted. You gotta remember that the same sin that's in their hearts is the same sin that's in our hearts today. In fact, um, you got to remember that the law doesn't bring life. That's not what it was here for. Because we can't keep it. And so it convicts us of sin. Even the ones in the New Testament, think about the guys that, that thought they were doing a pretty good job at keeping all the rules. Remember those guys? The Pharisees? I mean, honestly, they're the, you gotta remember, we think of them as the bad guys. They're really the good guys in that society, right? They're the ones that are keeping all the rules. In fact, they've made up rules, extra rules, so that they make sure that they don't break these rules. They're, they've got all of these, and what does Jesus call them? He says, you hypocrites. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He calls them whitewashed tombs. Like on the outside, kind of looks beautiful, but on the inside, it's full of dead man's bones and every kind of uncleanness. It's not just the Pharisees. You got the rich young ruler who comes up to Jesus, right? And he's like, hey, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you got to keep the commandments. And how does he respond? I've done that. I've done that since I was a little kid. And we read that, we're like, 
that's pretty impressive. I mean, I've, I've not been able to do that, and that's pretty awesome. He's, he's kept all the commandments. But the problem was Jesus knew what was in his heart. That he had an external religion, but he didn't love God. What the law is teaching us and helping us understand is that nobody keeps it. None of us are righteous. All of us fall short of the glory of God. And in fact, uh, Matt Chandler says it this way, that the, the, the law is kind of like a spiritual MRI. When you go into the doctor, that thing, you, you, you go under that tube that's kind of freak you out, but, but that thing's gonna light you up on the inside and show what's really there. And that's what's happening here. The law is revealing and convicting us of the sin that's in our hearts. We've all broken God's law. All of us have put other things before God in our lives. The Bible calls those idols. An idol is that thing that you say, like, I have to have this to be happy. Like, I just, I want this so bad, whether it be a, a relationship that you really want, whether it's like respect and people's love and admiration and their, their kind words, like I just, I need to hear those things or, or maybe it's better circumstances, I want things to change in my life, whatever it is, and, and, and that becomes so uh, important to us that, that if we don't get it or, or, or if, if we lose it or if it's threatened in some way, then we become angry and, and irritable and depressed and, and sad because we've uh, focused just on ourselves first and what we want and we want those things more than we want God. And, and then we become self-reliant and we become discontent with what we have, what we want, and we, we become manipulative just to, to get what we want. And the minute that we're like, well, at least I haven't murdered anybody, Jesus comes along and he's like, well, if you've ever gotten angry with your brother, you're liable for judgment. Well, I haven't, I haven't committed adultery. He says, well, if you've even looked at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. And so we see that this, this, these commands that were meant to make known to us the path of life, they, they read like a rap sheet of all of our failures and just prove to us we, we, we are guilty. And there's nothing wrong with the law, but there's something terribly wrong with us. But listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter three. I want you to see this because now he's starting to help us understand the way that we look at this and the way that we're applying this. He says this, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, curse be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. That would be you, that would be me. We're under a curse but he says, no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And see, what the law is doing, it was meant to show us we can't do this, but it points us to the one who did. Jesus came, and he didn't just get rid of this. He fulfilled the law. He did what we could not. And then he died on a cross in our place, a death that he did not deserve so that we could be redeemed from the curse, so that we could be forgiven. We could stand before God as righteous. And now in Christ, we are living in the freedom and the joy of the new covenant, the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. 
And God actually explains for us in, in Jeremiah 31, verse 33, God, God tells us what's happening in this new covenant. He says this, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. So it's no longer gonna be written on tablets of stone. It's now written on our hearts. We don't, we don't run back to the, the old covenant that God made with Israel and look at these 10 commandments and, and just try to be better rule keepers and, and, and make some outward improvements. No, no, God has made this an internal reality now and he has transformed our hearts so that instead of being bent towards sin, towards rebellion, now we have new desires. We love him and we want to live for him. And see, when Jesus was, was asked, he was asked, which is the greatest commandment? It's kind of an important question. Remember what he said? Matthew chapter 22, check this out. Here's how Jesus responded. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. It's love. That is the law of Christ. That we love Jesus. And that's not just some like nebulous sentimentality and emotion like, oh, I just love Jesus. No, no, no. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so his, his spirit, what's happening is he's put his spirit inside of us so that we're empowered by the power of the spirit to live in obedience to him. And the fruit of the spirit, what he's doing and, and, and the fruit that's coming out of us is just this evidence that there's, there's been a change in our hearts. He's making us more like Jesus and we love him. We love him because he first loved us. We love him not so that he'll accept us, but because in Jesus, we are accepted because Christ kept the law for us. The way that we grow in this is we grow in our love for Jesus. Listen, church, our, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples of all nations as we live in loving community. My heart is that, that as a church, we are growing in our desire and our love for Christ to follow him. And we're becoming a community where that is evident because we love one another. You see, as you grow in love for Christ and love for others, you realize this is the path to life. Now, before I, I pray, I'm gonna do something a little bit different. I'm, I'm gonna give you some homework this week. Is that okay? Um, you might need to, like, make a note, put, put a reminder in your phone, write a hand tattoo, whatever you got to do to remember this. But um, next week, we're actually going to do something a little different. We're going to preach through five chapters. So, so that means then um, I'm actually not going to read five chapters when we gather together uh, in, in, uh, next Sunday morning. So uh, I would love for you to spend a little bit of time this week uh, in preparation for our time together next Sunday, uh, reading the scripture that we're gonna be preaching through. So if you would, your homework is to read through chapter 20. I know we just preached through most of it, but I want you to read through chapter 20, 20, 21, 22, 23, and 24. 
all the way to chapter 24. That's five chapters. Would you just do that in preparation for our time together? We're going to pray that God has continued to make us a church that is falling more deeply in love with him and with one another. Let me pray for us. We'll continue to worship. God, we love you. Thank you so much. God, we're just seeing your glory and your goodness and your holiness on display in your law. Your law the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. I pray that as we look at it now, we, 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 we do measure our lives by it, but we see that it is fulfilled for us in Christ. And because of that, we just love Jesus more. And then our love for Jesus is not just kind of an emotion. We love you by walking in closer, deeper obedience to you. Knowing that if that's going to happen, it's going to have to be by the power of your spirit. So even in that, we're dependent on you. But God, you're doing it. You're making us more like your son. You said that if you started a good work in us, you're going to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And so we look forward to that promise. I pray that we would just build our lives on the love of Christ. It's in Jesus' awesome